All right, and John, over to you for a quick overview. Ah, uh, you're muted. All right, thank you. Um, so this this is a follow up book to a book we did um, in July 2020, and um, when the pandemic started and started to spread around, um, and there was lots of initial impacts and lockdowns, um, there was huge demands for kind of evidence, for models, for different things to help make decisions. Um, and we put a lot of effort into looking at that uh, with our partners and um, came up with a lot of insights into kind of how, you know, what was happening with poverty, what was happening to food, food supply, food security, uh, what was happening to different sectors of the economy. Um, and rapidly came up with the initial book, uh, which was a collection of blogs that we had edited and gone through over, over the first few months. We decided um, last year that we needed to update that. Um, given the experience of COVID, it really didn't uh, go according to expectations. I think, uh, you know, uh, it's never clear with pandemics and epidemics what's going to happen, but um, there was a lot of expectations because of other epidemics we've dealt with, avian flu, swine flu, uh, SARS, et cetera, over the years that, you know, we would eventually control this and move on to recovery and building back better. Um, and this, this pandemic has persisted and spread everywhere and, and the impacts have evolved and we've seen lots of waves of infection and new variants, et cetera. On the kind of food security, food system side, the impacts have evolved too. Um, and a lot of that relates not only to, to changing biology, but also to changing policy responses and actions by various actors, whether they're public or private. But it's exposed some things to the food system, uh, on the food systems that are, are, um, are important, I think. And some of them were existing weaknesses that we hadn't got right. You know, it's, we've known forever that pandemics can occur. We know how much they cost, that they're huge things, and we still don't do much to prevent them, for example. Um, it's also exposed some newer weaknesses. Um, you know, there's been a lot of gradual progress on reducing the number of absolute poor in the world, and that's been slowed. Um, and it's exposed some weaknesses and things we thought were relatively well handled before. It's also exposed some new opportunities. Governments have responded in smart ways in some cases. Um, private sector has evolved and, and adapted, agribusiness, uh, food, food companies. Um, and so there, there's some lessons there, a lot of digital innovations, et cetera. And as far as our research, we've learned a lot about how to, I mean, in the, in the initial six months, it was a pretty data challenging, information challenging environment. It was hard to get information we built on networks and household panels that we had to get information. Uh, but we've, we've learned to get a lot of different information and triangulate it and validate it and put it together. So we thought there was a lot of lessons and we felt that it was an incredibly challenging time for policymakers. They're dealing with this long-term COVID, but they've got a lot of other challenges to deal with conflicts, climate, you can see them coming up every day. Um, and so we felt that it was important to get this evidence out to policymakers uh, to help them kind of manage these challenges. So that's, that's the kind of rationale or the motivation for the book. Um, and the book is divided, there's an introduction, um, and then it's divided into four sections. 
The first is on, well, yeah, the first in, in terms of order is on food security and poverty. The second is on agricultural production and value chains. The third is on nutrition, health, and social protection. And the fourth is on policy responses and their implications. Um, and, the, and we have two types of contributions in the book. One are more synthesis chapters of lessons learned, um, where we brought people together to actually pull, pull a lot of lessons together. And others are that we've had an ongoing blog series, um, a lot of primary research, um, looking at impacts. And so we've been editing those over time and some of them we've updated for the book. So we've included those, those blogs as well. Um, so that's the kind of book. Let me stop there. That's just a kind of brief overview. Um, and then we can spend more time with your questions and thoughts. Okay, thanks, Drew. Terrific, thank you, John. All right, uh, we can go ahead and open the floor for any questions then. Uh, feel free to raise your hand, or as you said, go ahead and unmute and, and jump in if you're having trouble with the controls. And if there are no questions immediately jumping to mind, I might go ahead and single folks out and see if anyone has anything on their mind. Jerry, I've never known you to be so silent. <laughs> All right, well, James, it looked like you were unmuting. Does it, was there something you were gonna add to John's presentation there? I think there was a, an interesting question when we launched the book yesterday um, from our colleague at, at USAID asking us, you know, what more needs to be done? We have this evidence that's telling us that poverty is going to be substantially higher in, say, 2030 than, um, than uh, with COVID than we had expected it would be without COVID, before COVID hit. And I think, um, you know, after that question came in, I went back to look at in a little bit more detail about, you know, what is what is what would we have expected poverty to be in the absence of, of COVID? And I think, you know, the summary is from the World Bank that we have lost because of COVID globally, or at least amongst developing countries, about just over one year's worth of income growth um, than we would have had uh, without COVID. So basically, it set us back a full year of sort of global economic development. And that manifests in higher poverty over time. So it's useful for us to go back and think, well, how much has the world been sort of reducing poverty every year? And on average, over the last 10 years, it's been about 65 million people lifted out of poverty every year. And so we can then very simply say that about, you know, by losing a year's worth of income growth, we would expect poverty to be 65 million people larger or higher as a result. And so what that means then, but, but then that comes to the question, which uh, John raised uh, yesterday during the launch, which is, you know, have the fundamentals of that growth poverty relationship changed? Does that mean we need to do something different in the future than we've done in the past? Or do we need to get back to the business of development that we were doing before COVID? And I think at least to some extent, you know, our colleagues are estimating that poverty may be 80, 70, 80, 90 million people larger as a result of COVID. That suggests to me that that maybe the fundamentals haven't changed and that really it is about getting back to the business of development, that we've lost a year, but we haven't fundamentally broken the system. And so um, 
but but this is an opportunity. Every crisis is a good opportunity. And so what can we do smarter, as John was saying um, in the intro to the book, you know, what are the smarter policies? And I think one of the things that we have learned is that the agri-food system has a crucial role to play. During COVID, it was a crucial safety net. It was a refuge for a lot of urban uh, workers who were displaced and made unemployed. But we also know that the agri-food system is a crucial way of reducing poverty because it's where most of the world's poor are living. And so I think one of the lessons, if we're thinking about building back better and being smarter in the future and thinking about where our priorities lie now that we've learned from COVID, I think it is about the importance of the agri-food system, which has increasingly been slipping off the radar in terms of public investment, in terms of um, public sector support. And so I think, you know, if we're going to learn one lesson from this, it's that the fundamentals are not broken. And one of the fundamentals is that you've got to get the agri-food system vibrant and growing rapidly. Thanks, Drew. Thank you, James. Appreciate those comments. I think those are very, very strong. Tom, you, did you want to add something there? Could I please? Absolutely. Yes, let me put my hand down. Um, <clears throat> this is just a follow-on and an echo of what James is saying, that the words building back better suggests that there's something fundamental that needs to be uh, rethought and completely started from new and a new approach taken. Well, what really the research showed is that in situations where the fundamentals of the agri-food system, for example, the food supply chains uh, to cities, et cetera, had been in place, where the what I like to call the bones and blood of the food system were in place. You had the bones of the roads and the wholesale markets, and the blood was able to flow of the wholesalers and the truckers, et cetera, to move the food. Where those fundamentals were in place, we found that the system largely was resilient to the shock of COVID. It, it went down and then it bounced back. And in places where the fundamental investments had not been made as thoroughly as they should have been, uh, sometimes that correlated with some regions or parts of regions, then the shock was more devastating and took longer to bounce back from. And we also found that even for individuals, individual firms and farms that had made investments and uh, put assets in place were able to bounce back faster. Others had a more difficult time bouncing back and being resilient and recovering, but most of them still did. And so to reemphasize some of the fundamentals we already knew of public investments in infrastructure, for example, uh, is crucial going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Neha, do you wanna take it up from there? Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I would like to take a slightly different uh, take. I mean, I agree with what James and Tom mentioned about, you know, things. Uh, I would like to focus on the deficiencies that were highlighted because of the pandemic. So, you know, things that we were doing that weren't hitting the mark. So for example, uh, the vulnerable populations, you know, women, uh, social protection programs, once we, and also the non-poor. So many of It seems like maybe we lost Neha there. 
Um, all right. Well, I think uh, we can maybe soldier forward for now. It's too bad. It seemed like she was about to make a very good point there. <laughs> James, did you want to add something? I don't want to put words in Neha's mouth, but I think where she was going is that, um, you know, in saying that the fundamentals weren't broken, I guess what we're also saying is that the fundamental problems are not changed. And so, and so all of these deficiencies, which I think Neha was going to mention, I guess I should just qualify by saying, I'm not saying those have gone away. I'm saying the challenge hasn't changed, but the challenge remains. Great. Thanks. Thanks, James. Uh, that is in line with my understanding of her overall points as well, but hopefully she can join us uh, again here in a moment and uh, or rejoin us in a moment and clarify those points for herself. Uh, if there are no questions from journalists leaping to mind right now, please do go ahead and raise your hand or unmute and, and chime in if you have any questions. Otherwise, I will pose a question to the group. Hey, Drew and all, I've got Teresa. a question. This is Teresa Welsh from DevX. Um, you know, I've, I've heard you, you know, sort of say, um, you know, not much has changed and really we need the, the motivation to get back to the basics. Do you really feel like these lessons have been learned? I feel like we've all seen, uh, you know, the, the fault lines in the agri-food system displayed, you know, so blatantly over the last two years. Um, I think we all know what needs to be done. It's fairly obvious, but do you see the political and perhaps more important than that budgetary will um, at this point with fiscal space so constrained after two years of the pandemic to actually make those changes? I mean, are policymakers interested in actually doing what needs to be done? Thank you. Tom, is that hand to respond to that question? Yes, it is. is okay, okay? Ahead, please. Yeah, this is a great point. <clears throat> the um, yesterday, Suda was talking about South Asia, and that there was a flurry of discussions of what policy pivoting and reforms needed to be done now to respond to the challenges that were unearthed and made more visible by the pandemic. Um, and one of the directions of the conversation in governments uh, has been to refocus on ailing infrastructure and uh, rehabilitate the wholesale markets, rehabilitate the roads that proved to be so central to the ability of, of states and of peoples to respond to the challenges of the pandemic. And she said that the, the line of easier policies, policies that involve maybe just regulation changes or tweaking things here and there uh, have been approached with more alacrity and with more sustainability of effort. Uh, but the fundamentals of the returning to the issues of fixing broken infrastructure and improving uh, the wholesale markets, for example, uh, has been avoided, okay, because of exactly of the reasons Teresa said, which this is real money on the table, real allocations and a real commitment. And I've observed the same thing in Africa, that before the pandemic, and maybe Africa had some greater challenges responding to some of the challenges of like, let's say logistics 
slowdowns in, uh, because of a lack of prior investment in roads and in wholesale markets. So they were in the weakest position. The subject had been leased on the table before. And COVID, of course, made a, brought a greater profile to uh, the importance of those roads and those wholesale markets functioning for things to continue. But after COVID, will the money and the will and the political focus on building those things more solidly uh, be revived? I think that Teresa's point is absolutely central and it would be wonderful if the, the press of the world emphasized this to, uh, for due accountability uh, to, to get back to that kind of fundamental investment. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, James, if you want to go ahead and respond. And then Neha, I'd like to give you a chance. Welcome back. I'd like to give you a chance to finish your thought. The question we're addressing right now is from Teresa Welsh, uh, Teresa Welsh from DevEx uh, about whether um, policymakers and, and uh, leaders have really, really have learned these lessons from COVID and uh, whether we do have the political and budgetary will to make the changes necessary. So James, please go ahead. Yeah, no, th thanks, Teresa. I think you, you have touched on probably the most concerning uh, question that I have, and, and it sounds like Tom shares as well. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the good things we saw during COVID is that almost across the board in every country, um, agri-food systems were deemed essential, or at least agriculture and, and early processing was deemed essential. They were exempted from the restrictions and so on. A little bit of early growing pains, logistics and so on, but eventually these lessons were learned and agriculture was kept essential. The downside of that is that because agriculture was less affected by uh, than other parts of the economy, by non-agriculture, industry, services, and so on, uh, governments looking to rebuild, to recover, are, are turning their attention to those non-agricultural sectors outside of the agri-food system. And I think uh, your danger that, that, that you raise, the concern that maybe governments will say um, that actually what they need to do going forward is redirect resources towards non-agriculture and away from the food system because the food system acted as a successful safety net during the crisis, that could lead to a shift in priorities, which I think could start to undermine those fundamental relationships that have driven successful development and poverty reduction in the past and an improvement in food security. And we're seeing some of that in some countries where governments are focusing on a recovery effort that strongly favors um, businesses rather than farms, urban households instead of rural, and so on. And, and, and so I think it is a concern. And that's why I think it's important for us to get the message out that agriculture is part of the fundamentals, that the agri-food system is essential tomorrow, just as it was yesterday during the crisis, and that we have to keep the message um, that, that agri-food system investments are an investment in poverty reduction and long-term economic development. And so we shouldn't bypass them um, in, in order to sort of build back better, but only favor a few. Thanks. Thank you, James. Uh, Neha, did you want to come in and finish your, your point you were you were making before you got dropped sure, off? Sure. I don't, I don't know where I was cut off, but I, all I was trying to say was... Um, there were quite a few deficiencies in the way we were doing work were also highlighted in the pandemic. You know, people who are not covered in safety nets were, you know, they had nothing to go back to or nothing, no transfers were being delivered. And so I think that's where uh, governments tried to expand. And the initial, initially, when we were going into the pandemic, it was thought that, well, where structures are in place, 
uh, of social protection programs, it will be really easy for us to kind of, you know, either bump up the transfers or in expand uh, beneficiaries. It, in practice, it was not always as smooth is what we've seen in, in you know, some of the uh, countries that we've worked in. And so I guess some investment in trying to understand how best to do this um, it will be will be helpful going forward. Um, I do think the 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 not poor and the non poor in the urban areas are definitely very very underserved, uh, and so I think they are important. Not saying that the agri sector is not, uh, but I think they are all, uh, and it definitely things have to kind of work uh, hand in hand. Um, I don't think that the uh, the, so the, the governments are going to pull away resources from, you know, their usual uh, suspects of, you know, uh, providing transfers to the chronically poor. With I mean, we've seen in, for example, in Ethiopia, that people who were receiving the safety net, the national safety net transfers, they did, they were protected, but it's not like they did really well. So it's, you know, the, the, the safety net still is providing support and it's important. So I, I do not think that the governments are going to take it away. Um, yeah. Thank you, Neha. Um, John, back to the question at hand. I think you wanted to... Uh, so, so a couple of things. One is just quickly on the fiscal responses uh, that government, especially in low and lower middle income countries can make. They're going to be pretty constrained in their fiscal space. And so we actually did lay out in the book some ideas for debt relief, uh, some of this investment that Tom and James are talking about, um, as well as maybe some innovative finance in terms of pandemic bonds and other things like that. So I think there's gonna be a challenge for governments to keep up the funding. Um, and so that's gonna be important. But the other point I want to make is yet yeah, a lot of the fundamentals are there, but there's a few complexities that got introduced into this. Um, and they relate, I think, to kind of two issues. One is resilience and the other is inclusion. So, um, and one thing you gotta remember is a lot of these countries, the developing countries we're talking about are changing at unprecedented rates. They're just incredibly dynamic. Um, and a lot of them have food systems where there's fresh markets, where people are bringing things locally. And we found that there's a lot of challenges in those. Um, and it's and there's important trade-offs. Uh, for example, we are seeing more epidemics. We're seeing more emergence of pathogens from animals, either wild animals or domestic animals, to humans, and that relates a bit to a very you know um, dynamic food system with fresh markets, etc. We are seeing. Um, greater burdens of, of foodborne diseases. Um, if you go back to WHO, the foodborne diseases in low and lower middle income countries from fresh foods, microbial contamination, are just like HIV, AIDS, malaria, or TB. So, so these are big burdens. So trying to manage those infectious disease concerns and other types of pollution concerns, et cetera, as, the, as you know, populations expand, as food systems get more complicated is an ongoing issue. And I think the pandemics and, and the pandemic and some of the food safety concerns are, are part of that. Part of the trade-off is then who gets to participate in these things? Do we just want to have large companies that can manage the supply chains or what's the role of poor people 
in as buyers and sellers of food and, and local foods and fresh foods. And so that is a, a you know very complex area for countries to do it. And some countries are really kind of grappling with that. Uh, for example, Vietnam would very much like to follow the model of China, go to large firms, very controlled supply chains, but there's a lot of pushback, pushback at the grassroots level from, from people are saying, no, you know, we like our fresh foods, we like our fresh food markets, that's where the poor buy and sell their food. Um, and how do we improve food safety and, and infectious disease risk under those circumstances and make sure different people get to participate? So there is a lot of complexities um, in the food system because they're so dynamic and low and lower middle income countries. And Tom can make great points about how people are brilliant at adapting to these things and they do it fast. One of the points he made yesterday, which was very good is, we think that policymakers and lots of other people really don't understand the current food systems and their dynamism. And they have a view that's 10 or 20 or 30 years out of date. Tom, did you want to add to that? Yes, you can imagine I do. I'm, I'm excited by this. I, <clears throat> this is fantastic. And I think Teresa's, uh, you know, the, the question about whether people are looking the right way to the right priorities, <clears throat> you is really informed where they're looking and what they're thinking about is informed by their priors about what the food system is like. And one thing that I really noticed during the, uh, the, pen, the early pandemic and even further into it is that a lot of the national debates and the international debate focused on the ports, the imports of food and the international movement of food. And, and I was thinking, wow, wait a second, do people understand that 90% of all the food consumed in developing countries is moved through domestic supply chains. Only 10% is imported, and that's only in Africa. It's much less in South Asia and other places. In India, 3% of food is imported. Okay, so the immense importance of the domestic supply chains, but that had been a blind spot in a lot of the discussion. It was just assumed that was either there or it was there, but it was stagnant and traditional, and it was just going to keep bumbling along. And so a lot of focus went on that. And then because the assumption was that the domestic supply chain was not resilient and was not growing and was not uh, dynamic, uh, people reached out to the safety nets and the ideas of transfers. In survey after survey that we've looked at uh, post-pandemic or possibly post-pandemic, it turns out that extremely few people were affected by transfers and safety nets during the pandemic. <clears throat> and there was no way that transfers could have really picked up the, the immense role. When you think about the fact that the, the immense role of the domestic supply chain, when you think about the fact that in Africa and Asia, 80% of all the food that's consumed in those regions is purchased. Okay, so most of it's urban, and then a lot of the rural food is purchased. So they were depending very fundamentally on food supply chains. If those are impeded, then consumption is impeded. You can't make that up with a little bit of safety nets and transfers. And the point that John is making is that 
there had been a big assumption that policymakers had that there was a missing middle, that things were stagnant and broken and traditional in the in the internal supply chain, so that they weren't going to be resilient. So you need to you step up and and just hand things out. When in fact, what we found is when the situation was propitious for them to uh, respond, they, because of their dynamism and their ability to be resilient, they stepped up to the plate and they, and they uh, were resilient. And a perfect example of all this is in Nigeria, because uh, the, of, of this idea that the policymakers didn't really understand what the food system was like and the fundamental changes that have been occurring over several decades. When the pandemic started, the government declared as essential the food supply chains, which they thought of, let's say, the wholesale markets and the retailers. And then they declared as inessential, non-essentials, the third-party logistics, the trucking enterprises and all that. And what they didn't realize is that 75% of all the maize that's moved in Nigeria, that's consumed in Nigeria, is moved through these third-party logistics systems. So that when they declared the non-essential, that ground the system to a halt. It was a, a, a fundamental lack of knowledge of the basic, the basics of what the situation had become and had changed to over the years, and how important it was to keep that uh, system functioning. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, I want to leave the floor open for any questions for a moment. Hi, this is uh, Philip Rasher with Agriculture. Hi, this is a, uh, I understand this is not in this, uh, necessarily in the scope of the book um, that you're talking about, but uh, I'm interested uh, based on what is happening uh, in Ukraine, um, which is obviously a major exporter of corn and wheat and vegetable oil. Um, should we be concerned about the impact of uh, of that, uh, particularly with regard to prices, uh, prices of grains and vegetable oils um, on the countries that we're talking about? And at what point does it uh, become, uh, exacerbate the uh, issues we've been talking about here? Do you see, and you see a potential to worsen uh, food security or insecurity, I should say. I guess I was going to make a very simple point, which is that um, I think unlike the, um, the, the food price crises of 2008, 2009, where the price increases were very much spread across a large number of commodities, I think what we're seeing um, or what we expect to see um, going forward uh, because of the Ukraine crisis is a far more narrower set of commodities. The ones you mentioned, wheat, oil, edible oil, um, and obviously fertilizer. And I think um, it's probably the latter that's going to have the broader impact on the global agricultural system. But I think there are definitely countries, particularly those in the Middle East and North Africa, which are heavily dependent on wheat imports. I think there we're going to see the kind, potentially we could see the kinds of impacts on poverty and um, social instability that we witnessed during the, uh, particularly in urban areas, that we witnessed during the 2008, 2009. But I think it's still early days and I think we're still waiting to see how this can unfold. And we do have some ongoing work and some upcoming events at IFPRI, which I think are looking at exactly these kinds of issues. I think there is one tomorrow 
Um, and I think there we would have our experts who are sort of more able to address these issues directly and in a more in-depth way. But uh, I don't want to undercut John, so I should hand over to you. No, uh, just two things. Um, one is I think that there was a lot of information shared on the lessons from the 2008 food price crisis in terms of keeping markets open, et cetera, that, that, in, in, that worked well. And, and because there's so few exporters of the major cereals and they are critical to some countries like the Egypt, for example, and other Middle Eastern countries, um, that, that's a huge thing. The other thing is, I mean, everybody's keeping their eyes on food price inflation um, in, in certain countries. Um, and when we see some variability, we see, you know, it's not a, a completely happy story across the board. So there's, there are things we need to watch and stay on top of. Um, and some of them relate to fundamental economic issues. Um, and then some of them relate to, to food supply and demand. But uh, there's a lot more attention. And as James said, this is being followed up within IFPRI, but a lot more attention now on kind of variations in food prices. Um, and, you know, as we unlock supply, as things open up, there, there's all kinds of changes that uh, aren't anticipated. So it's important to, to keep watching that carefully. I guess if I could just, just add to that, I mean, one of the lessons we did learn from the 2008-2009 crisis, and this ties in what Tom was just saying, is that price increases at the border don't necessarily transmit all the way to the local markets and certainly not into the more remote rural areas and places like Africa, for example, where population density is, is somewhat lower than it is elsewhere. And so, um, and so it's important for us, obviously, for certain countries that are highly import dependent, um, you know, we could see and, and where wheat and bread are the staples of the broad population. Um, I think there it's very important to watch uh, what this could mean for poverty reduction and food security in those countries. Um, I can only speak from my experience uh, in, in primarily in Africa, that wheat and bread are not always the main staple food for many of the rural poor. And so we still wait to see what the immediate impacts of higher wheat prices might be um, and whether they would actually translate into higher prices for other cereals and then how that might then affect the rural poor or, the, or even the urban poor in Africa. Um, and then, like I said, what happens next season when the fertilizer is far more expensive and productivity begins to fall? I think that's when we're going to start worrying about broad-based impacts on the global food system. Um, and, and we have time because we know this is coming. We've learned lessons from 2008, 2009. I think there are some opportunities for us to sort of act, act early rather than wait for the crisis to happen. Thanks. Tom, do you want to add something there? Yes. Um, I think that I agree with what everybody said. I think that the capacity of the international food system to be flexible and diversify and change its configuration to deal with shocks has been demonstrated over several decades. And it always looks like things are set and this must be the effect of a shock, but often you have, uh, let's say, a reconfiguration of maritime shipping and countries that weren't important in a certain thing rise to the occasion and begin producing. If you think about, uh, Brazil. Brazil was not a player in soybeans and then very rapidly became a major player in the world. So there will probably be some reconfiguration of supply chains and 
for the producers of different commodities that occur because of these shocks. And you'll see uh, sort of a healing or a, a flexibilization of, um, of, this, of the supply chain over time. But a second point that really loops also into the question, the, the issue of climate change and climate shocks is that uh, it's going to be necessary to build into the food system of more redundancy and flexibility. Uh, so you, you hear this phrase and we have it in the book of a shift from just in time uh, to just in case. And so there's uh, more flexibility and redundancy. For example, CP, a major agribusiness in Thailand has built uh, three large port facilities uh, up a river in order to be ready for a typhoon uh, knocking out one of them, knocking out the second one. A lot of companies and countries are trying to put this capacity for resilience into place into its infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I think we have, oh, Tom, I think that's a residual hand, right? Um, any, any final questions, Carol? I do. Um, it was just a follow-up to the point that Tom just made. Uh, I was just quite interested in understanding whether any of the policy responses that we saw during the pandemic are going to make it easier or harder for the global food system to respond to this latest issue in Ukraine and Russia. I mean, specifically the, the point that Tom made about the, the shift from just-in-time to just-in-case supply chains. Any other examples? Yeah, Tom, please go ahead. This is a fantastic point because um, I haven't, if, if you think about uh, the case of South Africa, the citrus exporters uh, were hit by new protocols and new regulations and what should have been a devastating uh, set of <clears throat> uh, shifts from business as usual that occurred during COVID. But instead, the citrus exporters had had a history of 20 years of dealing with various kinds of lurches and new requirements regarding black spot disease, et cetera, and various protocol changes of the European Union and its exports. And a, a point that I, I just love from the South African colleagues is that they built up muscles of resilience. They got used to uh, shifting the configuration of their production and their uh, standards within the country. They got used to moving their supply from one region to another. And so I think that that ability to be flexible and to respond quickly to uh, changes in regulations is something that those that had it were better placed during COVID and those that gained it during COVID, I think will be better placed with other shocks, climate and conflict uh, in the future. So that's to me a general, uh, I, I can't, already say this specific group of uh, producers that learned something during COVID are already able to apply it uh, in this situation. But uh, let's say specific examples like the ability to move around to different ports and to reconfigure um, the maritime carriers that you're using. And even many companies are talking about investing in their own capacity of logistics. Uh, all of these things are things that occurred during COVID that probably are being brought to bear right now to 
shift sourcing and move uh, products around in a different way to get around uh, the immediate constraints. Thank you. And Tom, may I just ask a quick follow-up? Anything at the policy level, or was it mainly just the producers that responded in this way? Um, Carol, just um, a little bit. So we put a lot of effort um, early on, I, I might have mentioned, into kind of reiterating the failures of the 2008-2009 food price crisis. And a lot of them had to do, given that there are few exporting countries for the major cereals, into keeping trade open and not having export bans. And you know, when a crisis occurs, it's pretty, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction for many governments to, to bring in export bans. And so that was something that across the board, the international community and countries understood better um, and cooperate better on. And I think building that resilience of cooperation across countries, and we're gonna see it if, you know, if, if the supply chains for Ukraine break down for certain key commodities, how do other countries kind of talk about it and say, okay, how do we do some of these adjustments? So it can happen at the firm level, but I think it can also happen at kind of government, regional, even global cooperation. And um, I think that's a bit of a success story um, in the pandemic and that could continue. And there's been a lot of kind of concerted effort in keeping those discussions up. Oh, go ahead. Yes, can I say something? Yes. Uh, just a, a, an example, you know, two examples from South Africa that I think are fascinating is where governments were, you know, as I was speaking about before, where governments were more aware of the actual nature of their food system and on, on what it depended to function well. Uh, also, you know, in, in those situations where the government had a uh, a better idea of the realities of the local food system, they responded better. I think also where governments have had a good relationship with the private sector, be it the small uh, firms, private sector, or the large firms, private sector, or both, and we're listening to the constraints and the difficulties that were emerging because of a given policy or regulation and responded and changed their path uh, resilience was improved. So I'll give an example. In South Africa, uh, forest products and wood were declared as non-essential. And that sounded okay because, you know, get that off the road and get the food on the road. Then uh, the packing plants that depended on wooden crates for the fruit and for other products were left without wooden crates. And then the harvest had to stop. And the government was listening to the private sector and immediately said, oh, we have to pivot and declare this essential to have the wood you know, be able to get to the crate manufacturers. The same thing happened in various countries with respect to ports in India, in South Africa and other places. The, um, the, when there were difficulties with the ports, there was already a government and private sector a co collaborative association listening to each other and immediately the government changed its port policies and its uh, configuration of resources going to different ports, set up better interport, uh, transport, etc. So governments listening to the private sector and what it's experiencing during the shocks uh, is the hallmark uh, of, of governments during these sorts of 
immediate crises, but also the hallmarks of, for example, of countries like Chile that listen long-term as the private sector said, this is what we need in terms of port facilities and phytosanitary regulations as a country to respond to European demand change and, uh, and, and greater and greater quality and safety requirements. The government was listening to that and responded what, with what was necessary to make that happen. So responsive government in collaboration with private sector and able to be flexible to change as they see problems arising are fundamentals for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, you know, I'd like to build on this question a little bit uh, with a, a question to Neha um, about social protection. Um, you know, on this question of response, policy responses and resilience, particularly to either the, the current food price, uh, high food prices we're seeing now, or you know, future crises that may erupt from climate shocks, uh, et cetera. One of the, the big policy responses we saw were a, a huge uptick in social protection programs during COVID-19 um, with some positive impacts and some less, uh, less effective. But what, what, what can we say about that and how those might? Um... No, I, I think uh, it was, what happened in the last two years is definitely helpful in in the sense that governments learned what's working what's not working and where the resources need to go um, i mentioned this yesterday in the launch the in in bangladesh uh, they have a, a a food 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 friendly program where they provide rations of rice during the lean season um, and they do it four months in the year uh, depending on the, you know, when the ag lean season happens. And during the pandemic, they increased that allocation to extend it to a fifth year. Uh, and in a recent survey, we find that actually the households are not receiving it. So it was less than 10% of the households reported receiving this additional ration. Um, so what I take from that is the infrastructure was there uh, to actually deliver because they are doing it for the rest of the four months. The finances were there. So, you know, the political will was there, but there, there's some other issue that's not, that's not making everything work so that that extra ration can reach. So I feel like this is a good learning ex experience for the government to understand uh, why it's not working and to have mechanisms in place, monitoring mechanisms in place so that they can actually track as we, you know, as these are done, not six months later when researchers decide that, hey, let's go and check if, you know, if, they, if there were impacts uh, and we find out that well, the, the transfers never made it. So I think that is uh, one thing that's, um, one that governments can learn from. And uh, yeah, just, uh, but they are important is, is all I'm Say the transfers that households are receiving are important. We've seen that in the last 20 years, we've been evaluating these programs. They are important and in crises such as these, they will be important uh, going further. So uh, I, th I think, uh, I don't think the governments are going to pull back on those. Okay. Great, thank you. Uh, we've got about nine minutes left in our hour. So uh, if there are any, Final questions, please do pop up. Or if there are any final statements or words of wisdom our panelists would like to leave us with, please raise a hand. 
this is Jerry Hagstrom. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes. Uh, between COVID and the Ukraine situation, I wonder if there is any challenge to the fundamental idea that uh, you know, trade and imports and exports should be more important in agriculture and food consumption in the future. Uh, the reason I say this is that I had an economist uh, last week at a conference say that uh, companies or countries are really going to ask questions about whether they should do, do business with any of the Black Sea countries, with uh, Putin being the aggressor in Ukraine and who knows where else. This does seem to be different than a financial crisis. This is really war. And so I'm wondering whether anyone has any views on that. I don't have much to add, but I think um, I think we can safely say after all of the crises that we've seen, 2008, 2009, the pandemic, now the Ukraine uh, conflict, um, I think it, it can't help but but have governments question whether a reliance on imported foods is a wise strategy. And I think inevitably we're going to see uh, countries shift towards more uh, more reliance if they can. On, on domestic um, on domestic food food production, so I think that that's an inevitable um, policy outcome. I, I think for some countries, it's going to be extremely difficult to shift. Uh, Egypt, for example, has a long history of wheat dependent import dependence and has huge social protection programs that subsidize bread and wheat that are part of the social fabric. And I think it'll be very difficult to, to, to turn around those kinds of dependencies in the future. But I would imagine most developing countries, most countries are probably questioning whether um, uh, the open global trading system and a dependence on food imports is a wise strategy uh, going forward. I, I think it's inevitable that that gets questioned. Tom, do you wanna add something there? Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Uh, I again feel that it's necessary to emphasize that uh, imports are a small share of total food consumption in developing countries. If you think about uh, the case of India, it's 3%. China, 2%. Africa, 9%. Okay, in all of Latin America, 7%. And so people really. I think uh, focus in because of the international discussions and international system on what's going to happen with food imports and will that cripple countries, but it needs to be put in that perspective. And secondly, uh, emphasizing what James is saying is that uh, the, the impact is on a certain commodities, for example, on rice, uh, you know, the, the importance of the impact is on certain commodities, rice, edible oils and fertilizer, for example, in Africa, because those are the main things that are imported. There's little import of other things. There's scattered here and there. And uh, the things that are not uh, those particular commodities are very possibly obtainable from other countries within the region. So that's my second point. The second point is that it might not be a turning completely away from trade, but it might be turning more toward intra-regional trade. For example, buying things from other parts of Africa, um, or it could be more South-South trade. Uh, you know, if when there was a, a problem of getting a certain kind of product from 
one place uh, you have an increase in imports of, of frozen fish or frozen chicken from Brazil. And so I think that there'll be reconfigurations of trade. And third, I think that there'll be, you know, besides, okay, so one is the, the importance of trade. Second is the, that people will reconfigure uh, toward more internal trade. But third, I think that the move rather than totally away from trade will be to diversify sources of trade. That's what we've saw during the pandemic. That's what we saw before. <clears throat> Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So if you were very heavily dependent on Central uh, Asia or Eastern Europe for a particular product, uh, you might start buying more from another place. This happened actually uh, with uh, some uh, things closer to home where we had some issues of buying um, corn and some countries turned toward more, buying more corn from Brazil. Uh, and so there'll be some reconfigurations and there'll be some diversification so that you're not so dependent on a particular area. Will there be a, a wholesale shift from dependence on imports at all? Again, that would be a very minor thing because it's only 9% in Africa, 8% in Asia, 7% in Latin America. It's not going to be that big a shift, but where the shift occurs, uh, it'll be basically, I think, and more towards substitution toward sources within the region or other countries. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. James, is there one more? I, I was just going to say, I, I agree with Tom in general. Um, I, I think that there is also within countries, there are some differences in how consumers spend their money, whether they live in urban or rural areas. And I think what we saw in 2008-9 is that it was very much the urban consumer that was hit harder by changes in global markets and, and world market prices. And so, um, and that did lead to protests in the streets and it did lead to social unrest. And so I think there are some real concerns but in aggregate, I, I agree with Tom. I think I think we do tend to overestimate trade um, as a source of food for most of the world's poorest populations. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, James. All right, uh, we are about three minutes away from time here. So unless there are any final burning questions, I think we can go ahead and conclude today's session. If there are any burning questions, please do unmute and stop me. Uh, but we remain available for any other uh, comments or analysis that any of you all might need. Please do feel free to reach out to me by phone or email. Uh, if you have any follow-up questions or are working on any stories and need further comments on anything. For today, thank you again to our panel, Neha, Tom, John, and James. And thank you to Carol, Philip, Teresa, and Jerry for joining us and asking terrific questions today. Uh, we will be in touch and we I've shared some other resources in the chat. We're going to have, uh, as James mentioned, uh, we have a series of events on food prices coming up uh, over the next three weeks, one starting tomorrow uh, at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. So please do join us for those as well. We'll probably also have another media briefing on that topic uh, sometime next week as well. So keep your eye on this space. Thanks, everyone. Thank have a great day. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.